curious about where clothes are going next? Today, I ask Claire Press that very question. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 362. And if you're tuning in live to the show, we only have two two weeks left. That's it. And our last two shows of the year are beautifully focused on sustainability, planet care, closing loops, seeing how the little everyday things that we might do uh, can make an impact as a collective, as well as what some of the bigger voices in movements are doing. And today we're looking at that in fashion. Six years ago, I had the wonderful Claire Press, the first sustainability editor of Vogue, on the show to do two things. A, to celebrate the launch of her wonderful first book, Wardrobe Crisis, but B, to also have a look at what all the biggest fashion conversations were at that time. Now, that was 2017 and a lot has changed in fashion. A lot of people who still feel that we should be moving away, say, from animal-based leathers and things And also realising, of course, that synthetic plastics are absolutely not the thing to be replacing that if we want to take the care of the planet into consideration. Now, uh, there are many materials that have surfaced since. There are many conversations that have been had around what closing the loop really looks like. And what I love about today's conversation and the celebration of Claire's second book that has just come out. And I really do feel that this belongs in your holiday reading arsenal because it is an absolute work of art. I mean, just just incredible uh, synopsis of both all the questions we all have around fashion and clothes, as well as exploring all the solutions that might exist around that topic. Uh, so we are here to talk about some of the themes that come up in there, but also some of the questions that I know you and I explore in say our membership conversations or on social media and, you know, that desire for transparency and knowing that we're actually making a difference, uh, versus kind of hoping for the best and downloading an app with some ratings and, and really hoping they've done their research. Today, we really look at uh, how we can start to feel more empowered in this space. And for those of us who really like celebrating an individual style or making wardrobe updates every now and then, how we can do that. Because you guys know my mold story. And even if I walk into an op shop, I get sick for several days. I'm still very sensitive and rebuilding that resilience. So when secondhand might not be an option, say, for everybody, what could that look like? Um, but for those who can buy secondhand, and I do want to give you a tip here uh, before I start the conversation with Claire, um, the best thing you can do is to borax hand wash if it's a delicate or hot wash if you possibly can, like if you're buying some shirts and T-shirts and things from op shops, 
hot wash it in borax and then give it another wash in your regular low-tox washing liquid. Uh, shout out to Koala Eco if you haven't tried that one. I love it. It is so gorgeous. Uh, but if you want to... Uh, a low-cost supermarket option, the Aware Sensitive Powders, fantastic. And then for you guys over in the US, you have the wonderful BioClean brand, which is great. Or you can use the Dr. Bronner Sal Suds uh, as well for your laundry needs. Uh, so there's lots of low-tox options now, but that hot borax wash first will kill any mould. And then a further wash to just really, um, you know, uh, finish your project, let's say, and then sun dry if you can possibly do that. That is your safest way to take any clothes that may have been contaminated by a past, uh, you know, musty wardrobe or something. Uh, and that is actually a really great way for most healthy people to really enjoy and make the most of the savings and the slowing down of the fashion cycle through op shopping and secondhand. Uh, So it's a bit of a tangent on what we're talking about today, but I know it's something that a lot of people worry about and I know it's something that I have a huge challenge around. So I just wanted to share that in case that was anybody else's challenge. Uh, I have landed in a space where I have an occasion-based wardrobe that is extremely small and narrow. You guys have seen me wear the same thing again and again, like hundreds of times. My peace top I've had for five years. I reckon I've worn that little peach-coloured sweatshirt about 500 times now, and it is still going strong. So uh, a shout-out to People Tree UK. My God. Gosh, you guys make clothes that last. Let's just say that um, with some beautiful values and ethics around that brand as well. So, look, there is so much we can do in fashion, and I think Claire's book is brilliant. I'm actually going to read you uh, because it's a shorter podcast, this one. So, I'm going to read you a little bit from the very first part of her book. Uh, so, tune into that in a little minute. We can't do this show without our sponsors, and they help you make your low-tox swaps possible with the amazingly generous discounts they give us. So Oz Climate, our major sponsor, 10% off their already discounted prices for both their dehumidifiers and for their air purifiers from the Winix range. And then, of course, now they've got a portable air conditioner. So uh, what I love about this one, I've always hated portable air conditioners because until very recently, actually, they used coolants and things that were extremely bad for the environment. But B, they didn't have any kind of filters that allowed for dust to stop collecting inside them and mould to grow. So a lot of people only get one or two years out of this enormous appliance that then goes to landfill. Whereas the new Oz Climate one actually has a filter grill that is dust preventative, and you can actually remove that, vacuum it and put it back on Uh, So it's a really good quality unit uh, if anyone is feeling the pinch in the summer, uh, it's definitely one to check out. Uh, And the great thing about a portable unit is you can just use it for short periods of time to just cool the room down before you sleep uh, rather than um, big whole house systems that often end up not being great from an energy usage perspective, both on the cost and the planet front. So something like that could actually be really handy. Now, um, the second, have I given you the code? Lotox Life is the code, 10% off. Just use the code at checkout. And 
if you do get a unit of some kind, remember it's the humid season here in Sydney, you need a dehumidifier. I don't care. (laughs) No one can get away without a dehumidification plan if you live in a humid summer. It's not possible. You will end up ruining your clothes, seeing as we're talking about fashion today, and shoes and leather jackets and whatever else you might have, uh, uh, even your mattresses without strong dehumidification if you don't already have that in place. So use that 10% wisely. Uh, I have done a whole show on humidity questions and that was 361 last week. So head back to that show and take a listen. Our second sponsor is Killer Pillar. I love these guys. We're talking about using sustainable, beautiful, natural fabrics uh, made to last and chiropractor designed. Dr. Todd is passionate about spinal alignment and has designed the what looks like a super quirky pillow um, because of the dip that's in the headspace. He wants us all to get used to lying on our backs. Now, a lot of people snore in that position and a lot of people have um, a preference to side sleeping and you can actually still side sleep on the side of the pillow, but uh, his Passion is spinal alignment and the flow-on effect for everything from our nervous system to blood flow through the neck and therefore headaches and migraines. These pillows have made life-changing impact on a lot of people uh, since they launched a few years ago. So I was delighted to see they're back in business after the COVID years, uh, finding it a little hard to run from America where they've been uh, with uh, a family member who needed them. So it's awesome to see them back and they're giving you 15% off and free shipping till the end of the month. So 31st of December. If you're overseas, you're listening to this, you check out their website and you think, gosh, that looks actually really interesting. Uh, It really is a great pillow. Just pop them an email and see what can be done wherever you live. Uh, Because if this has been a constant chronic issue for you, uh, all I can say is a lot of people in the community have had success stories with it over the years. So as I said, I was going to read a little bit of the very start of Claire's book, before I started uh, talking to her. Um, But now I've just realised I haven't given you the code for Killer Pillar either. Your code is Lotox Life. I'm trying to make all of the brand codes Lotox Life moving forward to make it nice and easy. And that discount is 15%. Okay, I am back with Claire's book. Now, I just want to read literally the first uh, part of the first chapter. Uh, she divides it into today, tomorrow, and you choose. So the chapters are conscious, fair, slow, even faster, upcycled, community, less, local, global, traceable, repaired, shared, regenerative, biointelligent, robotic, and digital. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. I guarantee you I haven't seen people talking about this in the concise way that Claire's put this body of work together to help you see what could be possible in the future. Let's have a read of this first little bit. I often get stopped and told people like my voice in the podcast and that's why you listen. So here we go. Let me read you a little book. Uh, Well, the first page of. What now? Imagine the fashion world is built on genuine beauty. 
The appeal of a garment extends right back through the process of making it, whether that's by a skilled hand or a sophisticated machine. The people who make our clothes are treated with respect. Materials are regenerative and biodegradable, recycled or upcycled. The fashion industry exceeds its 2030 climate targets and reaches net zero a few years later. It operates safely within planetary boundaries. Sharing and repairing clothes is convenient and inviting. Oh my gosh, I love that. Slow local fashion is flourishing. But if you prefer, there's a high-tech digital solution for everything. Apps connect circular fashion services, or you can change your look every hour by dressing your avatar. Greater government regulations mean that new clothing from global brands is much more sustainable than it used to be. There's also less of it. We used to pretend that fast fashion was a democratising force simply because the price points were low. We've wised up, and now we recognise that value means more than price. Success has been redefined. Companies now prioritise ethical production and purpose as well as profits. Hello. There is a new spirit of pre-competitive collaboration. This fairer fashion world is also an inclusive one. Design caters to everybody and fashion celebrates difference. Whether it's DIY or AI-enabled, we get to play more with personal style. We've largely stopped talking about sustainability, but the new words that have come into fashion parlance, we think empathy and integrity to fashion, and we consider collective well-being. The razzle-dazzle remains, but the guilt is gone since fashion no longer exploits. It's a positive influence on the planet, on culture, communities, and mental health. It could happen. This future just described has not yet arrived, but we can create it if we try. I think we should, don't you? I'm sick of fashion being such a downer. That's not what I came for. When I fell in love with fashion as a teenager in the late 90s in Britain, it was for its powers of transformation. I loved getting dressed up and playing with different looks. I loved the people I met who did the same. Fashion for me back then was pure joy. That's just a little taste. And then she goes on this fantastic start of the journey where she spends some time in a train station, just people watching and seeing what kind of clothes people are wearing. And uh, we unpack that a little bit in our chat. So to that end, why don't we start that conversation? I really hope you enjoy it. I can't wait to see what you think of it. And I've popped the details for Claire's wonderful new book, Where Next, with a little play on words there, of course, W-E-A-R, if you wanted to Google it, uh, by Claire Press uh, in the show notes so that you can grab a copy maybe for Christmas reading or maybe for Christmas giving. Uh, I've got books too. (laughs) Support your independent authors. Try buying directly from sites so that they're not earning 50 cents a book on a shelf somewhere. But given Claire is in launch mode, I would actually say best to buy it from the the stores because that's what keeps it on the shelves and keeps it being shown to lots and lots of people out there. Enjoy the chat. Claire Press, hello. Hello. I am so thrilled to have you back and I cannot believe 
that it was 2017 when we first spoke on this podcast. I know, Alex, I actually looked it up because I was like, oh, I wonder when we did that. It was a while ago, but it, mm. time does fly. It really does. And fashion, I'm curious, has it flown? Have things changed? You have been in this space of sustainable fashion for a very long time as both a pioneer, a nerd, a researcher, a connector. Uh, What have you seen in this time if things could float to the top as a few themes? Yeah, I mean, I actually did go back and re-listen to our podcast because I was curious, like, what did we talk about in 2017? And we were talking about Wardrobe Crisis, which is the title of the first book I wrote about sustainable fashion. But more broadly, we're talking about some topics which... I thought it was interesting because we're still going on about them because we haven't solved them. Um, We were talking about one of the first things we addressed was overproduction. And and I thought that was something I wanted to focus on in this conversation because I thought, God, that's evolved. But actually, it's an interesting thing because when you look back, these issues have been percolating for years and years. I think we can credit, for example, Fashion Revolution and the amazing work that they have done in consumer-facing communications around this, raising awareness of fashion being unsustainable. But issues like overproduction, waste, brands failing to pay a living wage, we were talking about them in 2017, you and Mm. I. We were talking about them at Fashion Revolution 10 years ago and we're still talking about them today. However, I've definitely seen a massive change in terms of awareness where we've gone from... Only a few people, experts, niche players, shining a light on this, NGOs looking at supply chains, maybe a few brands that really care to a huge awareness in the wider public. And you see it everywhere just in terms of fashion stories on the news that cover waste or um, COP28 happening now with quite a lot of conversation around fashion and brands. So I I do actually think we've made a lot of progress, but it is... I'm going to say it's frustrating to see that so many of these issues are just um, nowhere near being solved, if not worse. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about that because sometimes like I have these big head explosion thoughts and then I think, oh, God, that's just all too hard to think about, you know. So the thing that I often think with fashion is, of course, fast fashion makes no sense uh, environmentally. Uh, it, It makes no sense from the uh health perspective of breathing in microplastics um because the only way you can make cheap clothes is often by incorporating cheap materials that are synthetic uh then that has a knock on effect down drains and waterways and but the knock on effect of actually going you know what i'm going to buy one really great quality $200 top and just wear that to death, which is kind of more my style. That would be more what I would do. Um, maybe not 200 bucks, but <laughs> well, you know, give or take. Uh, but basic maths then shows me that that might then start putting tons of people out of jobs. Oh. And I just go, oh my gosh, then, you know, what do we do with that? I totally know what you mean about that being a head spin. And that's why we talk about things like a just transition when we're looking at reshaping our economies. And that is a phrase that belies the complexity that is underneath it, which is that it's enormously difficult to reskill people whose jobs will be uh, not there or in different forms or different places, locationally speaking, in the future. Um, but with having said that, 
I really do not think that we should not slow down fast fashion because we are frightened of, let's face it, predominantly women who can least afford it losing their jobs in the global south because, and this is another head spinner, they're already going to lose their jobs in the global south because we are seeing the advance of the robot economy, which is absolutely coming like a freight train. This is quite negative. I actually want to talk about some of the positive stuff. But it is true that large swathes of manual and, shall we say, low-skilled jobs, although seam sewing and being a seamstress or a sewist is actually highly skilled. But if you think about low-paid jobs in low-cost, in inverted commas, countries, many of those jobs are already on the verge of being wiped out by automation. So so that is much more of a threat than a few of us saying, let's actually examine our patterns of consumption. Um, that doesn't take away the complexity of it. But I, I think it's a bit of a poor excuse to say, if I stop buying fast fashion, am I going to directly impact uh, one woman's work somewhere? I don't think the connection is that clear. And I also think that we need to, it would take enormous proportions of us changing our consumption habits to have that knock-on effect quickly and that is not where we're at so I would still encourage people to slow down and rethink and and the ultimate aim is that we would be producing better jobs where people are paid fair living wages for doing work that is not just sustaining for themselves and their families but also not just dirge work where they're at risk of exploitation so I think it's about the quality of the jobs that we look to build in the future and in fashion, what do those jobs look like? What types yeah. of things would they be doing? Well, look, um, because it's interesting that you start with the hardest question, Alex, because <laughs> this is actually the hardest question. So I've just written this new book, which is about the future of fashion, and I tried to imagine positive, beautiful futures for some of these scenarios which are most likely to shape the way that we live in the future. And there are a couple of chapters where it was difficult to imagine those positive scenarios. Those chapters include ultra fast, so a speeding up of our already speedy fashion system, which we know is happening. And also at the end, there's a chapter called robotic, which is about automation. And again, it's quite hard to envisage a beautiful future there when you consider job losses. The best kind of, I'm not going to say it's a black and white answer because they're rarely there, but the best, um, most thought-provoking discussion I had with people that appear in the book was in that chapter on robotic um, also looking at the tension between local and global with a British researcher and fashion academic fashion academic called Kate Fletcher who talks about the quality of the jobs that we would like to be building in the future for garment workers and I think it is about visioning what that would look like um, where Let's focus on that woman in the global south who is so often the most marginalized, sewing our clothes in a factory we may never see, in a country we may never visit, that we've dubbed a low-cost producing nation, which is terrible. But in a beautiful future, that woman is no longer in a low-cost producing nation. That woman's work is valorized and valued, and she's working reasonable working hours for a living wage. She's still working in the fashion industry, but her skill set has been... And actually just got goosebumps when I think about that, because that's what I want to see. Her skill set, which is deep and beautiful, is now valued for what it is, which is valuable. And so the garment that she makes is sold for more money. Absolutely. It can't be that cheap and it can't be turned over that fast. But we're buying it for a fair price and we're looking after it and using it in our lives with more care and intention. And that has a knock on effect for her and her community, too. 
it's not an easy answer because there isn't one to that. Ask me an easy question. No, there isn't. <laughs> but at the same time, like it, I wanted to start there because it is like, oh gosh, I get to talk to Claire. This is a question that is burning for me. And it's often pushback that I get from other people, relatives, friends, people who I'm Mauritian on mum's side and Mauritius is a predominantly Indian nation. There's a very strong connection with India. So we kind of understand that marginalised woman worker and we don't want her, we know her, you know, and we don't want her to lose her job. So I think it's a very real part of the discussion uh, and I love that 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 um, call to upgrade the entire scenario. And also for brands to stay put, right? Mm. So what has traditionally happened in the last 20 years is that brands chase the cheapest needle around the world. So they may be producing in, for example, Bangladesh. And then when the living, when the, sorry, when the minimum wage is raised, they may then be like, okay, this is more expensive. So I'm going to chase cheaper labor elsewhere. And then they decamp to, insert cheaper nation here you know um perhaps it's in ethiopia perhaps it's i don't know elsewhere but what what they're doing is refusing to stick around as the industry becomes more established and fairer and as living standards rise and that's on brands for being Mm. unethical right so in a beautiful fashion future I think we would see regulation that is around due diligence and supply chain transparency and an expectation that you commit to more ethical business practices. And that's also possible. That's actually Mm. beginning to happen. And so with fashion, you know, if if anyone on Instagram who follows a few designers and you're, you know, watching accounts or you're watching celebs do things in their day-to-day and you're seeing those really artistic clothes so it's more, I would classify that fashion as art, um, but then we wear clothes clothes, which aren't necessarily fashion. And I love that you do this exercise at the start of your book, which is like um, people spotting in a train station. Uh, talk to me how you arrived at that being something you wanted to do as a part of the writing process of this book as you reflected on where we were at day-to-day versus celebrity and then these crazy divides between the realities of the two. (laughs) Thank you for enjoying that. I enjoyed it as a practice. So when I set out to write this book, which is basically a follow-on from a book that I wrote in 2016 about how stuffed up fashion was and how terrible everything was, but also looking at historically how we got to that point, I I knew that we'd already done such a good job of shining a light on everything that was wrong in fashion and actually what we hadn't done, I don't think, well enough. Um, was tell really compelling stories about how we could do things differently that had already begun. So you could actually go, okay, I'm aiming for this. I'm going to start visioning this beautiful future. But then when I started thinking, all right, what would a really amazing, creative, dynamic, beautiful, but also ethical, sustainable and environmentally and socially responsible industry look like for me? I was like, there's no point just imagining what's on the runway because that only looks like fashion for a tiny fraction of people. And most of us don't actually either buy those things, but even think about those things. Perhaps we're entertained, like you say, by a celebrity wearing one of those items, but it doesn't mean anything to us. I use fashion as an umbrella term to just mean clothes and what we wear. And so I wanted to begin with real, being real about that, getting real about that. And look at me, I'm wearing a white shirt. 
Mm. I'm a fashion woman <laughs> wearing a navy blue dress. Very I'm simple an old today. White shirt that yeah. I like. You're wearing a navy blue dress with a round neck. You know, this is what people wear. People do not wear um, in their day to day life unless they are extremely wonderful living works of art, either sustainable, upcycled, crazy, brilliant outfits, or ridiculous, out of our price range luxury outfits from the fashion runway in Paris. Well, they actually wear is ordinary stuff. So to prove that to myself, I sat outside a train station and had a little notepad. And then I wrote a little, a list of a table of columns and then just marked them off when I saw people wearing jeans, t-shirts, hoodies, baseball caps and sneakers. And then I think I put tank tops in there. It was summer. So this is just what everyone's wearing. And then I had another column, which was like Vogue. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how many of those were there? just have to sit there for like an hour and a half before anyone wears anything resembling a trend that is depicted in one of the glossy magazines. And so when you then reset your thinking around that, and I think we do need to do that because if we're talking about a system and what most people engage with, let's be real. Fashion just feels completely off the point for most people, especially when you think about a cost of living crisis or or just the practicalities of being a mum or going to work in as a commuter or whatever it may be so so let's be so let's start from a realistic point what do we actually wear and then we can start asking people what would you like what kind of system would you like there to exist that produces these things you already wear in a way that you would feel happy with and proud of and within that you can also have creative dynamism I do love you know I love an outfit but but I do think we need to make this relatable. Otherwise, we're not going to change things. If you just make it all velvet rope, people don't care. Velvet rope, meaning like, you know, celebrities and, uh, you know, uh, this kind of elitist idea of what fashion with a big capital F might be. Yes, exactly. So interesting to think about. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because architecture has kind of beiged out a bit, I feel like everyday fashion has as well. Like you look, you watch something like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and you look through those. Watch that. She looks great. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's gorgeous. And from the 40s to the 70s, you really see lots of incredible uh, definitive moments in time with fashion. And you talk about that, right? And it's almost like we're moving away from that a little bit. And, we're, and we feel less stressed if we... I remember thinking, oh gosh, I've got to get a a knee high boot or something like in my twenties. In my twenties, I think I actually had that thought. Crap, you know that's what's in right now. But I remember having a defining moment, and it's funny that you mentioned like the stresses of modern day or being a working mum. I remember once I had a kid, like looking going past a. I don't even go to a Westfield now, really, unless there's something desperate my kid needs, but. I remember starting to think, nah, I don't really like those colours or, you know, of that season. Or, oh, I don't need you to tell me. never really yeah. suit me anyway, so yeah. I don't really care. I don't um, need you to tell me that this is the season of purple. <laughs> yes, exactly. But you know what, Alex? I wonder if it's actually getting older and more experienced in your own confidence in your own sense of self. But also for me, it has been a sustainability awakening. But I'm... And so it's funny when you were saying, is there a moment when you stop being interested in these things or you start to maybe see it for what it is, which is manipulative marketing. And for me, yeah, like I've been working in this space of sustainability for 10 years, nearly. 
maybe not quite something coming up there um yeah 2014 this is a long time and and I found that the further I get into this work as I also get older I'm mostly interested in trees and I'm not joking Mm. (laughs) so what I'm saying is I find it quite hard to actually care about clothes because really I'm interested in trees ecology um reading a book by Merlin Sheldrake called mm. Entangled Life about how mycelium networks. Well, I mean, look, Anna Winter would prefer to be at the tennis. So, <laughs> right. but so it, so when you start thinking there's more to life than um, than fashion, than consumerism. Or, or, well, when you start thinking actually actively, consumerism mm. is a real problem, and I wish to change it. Then you do question whether or not it is valid to work in fashion at all. However. It's a long-winded way of saying I've stuck at it because I still believe that the arts in general, music, film, fashion, have enormous power to persuade large groups of people to think in a certain way and embrace certain... I want to say trends and I don't want to say trends. Concepts, I think, (laughs) or ideas. Cultural concepts, yeah. Mm. And so for me, I find it a very soft, inviting way to bring people in to bigger things which are about social justice or environmental activism you know and so that's why I stick at it but the other thing I would say is if we do broaden that perspective to stop fashion being just for the chosen few and say that it really is just what we wear and it becomes universal and then you then you don't get to say I'm not interested because actually when we're talking about how our clothes are made, it could be your husband's sports kit, your kids' school uniforms, what you wear to the gym, what you wear to swim in. It's all of that. And if we talk about textiles, it's also your curtains and your cushions and all the rest of it. So actually, it is a very universal touch point. And if we can get people to think about how they buy stuff by way of these things, I think we can change culture. Mm, I totally agree. And so I have a question then about young people that you talk to uh, in this process of writing the book, because we've talked about as you get older, uh, the the priorities shift, you feel less inclined to feel like you need to show up in a certain way and you just become you and stop giving a shit really um, more and more. Uh, I wouldn't say that's the case for young people, given I'm seeing them all wearing the same things but I could be wrong Mm. I was really interested to hear what younger people think because there's so much spotlighting on fast fashion as an unethical system and so much of that is done by older journalists who actually have the privilege of unpacking that and picking at it but the people who are buying these clothes in the fast fashion sense I think it's different if you're talking about cheap clothes for those other categories I mentioned, workwear, uniforms, whatever, which is also a massive problem. But particularly the kind of fast fashion brands people would be aware of. If you're not into this, you think it's H&M and and Zara. If you are into this, you'll realize we've moved on and it's now the online ones that don't have physical stores that sell much cheaper, much faster product, which are things like Boohoo and Shein. And these clothes are overwhelmingly being bought by very young women. And that's because they've got no money. <laughs> Imagine when you take yourself back to being 16. You've got a bit of money from a Saturday job and you want to look as cool as you can. And you also live in a culture that's obsessed with newness and social media. 
you're going to shop potentially at these unethical fast fashion brands. And I wanted to know, how does that work if that same young person doesn't have to be a woman? I don't think it's just gendered. I think that's actually a fallacy. So that same young person also cares, as we see from the stats that they do. And anecdotally, we see it in our families and our friends. They also care about the environment. They also care about other people and they want to live in a better version of the world that they've been lumped with so why are they buying this is it just because it's cheap and how do they then square that up ethically in their own brains so I did a bit of of sort of research basically meaning spoke to a lot as many young people as I could about this and a few of them who appeared in the book trying to find out is it one consumer versus another one who doesn't care who's just I don't know consuming love island celebrity looks off boohoo and then one who's like totally into climate activism and would only wear vintage. And what I found was that's not true, that those two things coexist in the same wardrobe and do come with guilt. People feel bad about it, but they also don't have other options except the harder one to take, which is I reject it all and I'm going to be the one who stands out and says no. So most of most of the people I spoke to said we do both. We try and buy a lot more secondhand and we certainly buy a lot more secondhand than you, you lot did. But we also do sometimes buy these clothes because that's what we can afford and that's what we're marketed. And so so that comes back to what we are saying before about everyone always wants an easy answer. Is it A or B? And it never is. It's always a mixture. So in this book, I have these chapter themes which are imagining, envisaging these most likely scenarios that are going to shape our fashion future, which you could also extend to our general future of life on this planet around consumption and how we live, right? And they're things like slow, conscious, fair, but they also include ultra fast. <laughs> at the yeah. Same time. yeah. And, and I think that's the reality is, as you say, it's not black and white and there's no easy fix and there's no one way. I mean, we're, tr- we're seeing with food, for example, this corporate hijacking of what climate change and food looks like. And, you know, we're, we're expected to replace the humble cow who's an amazing soil factory unto themselves to create beautiful diversity and reverse and protect from diversification. And I mean, so many incredible things and we're supposed to replace it with a monocrop grain-based fake sausage. Explain to me how that works. Oh, corporate IP is how that works. And and I feel like uh, we we see the same across all the big polluting industries. We do. And actually, Alex, I think the mass mechanisation of everything is one of the most difficult things we are grappling with now. And in the future, we'll then add another layer of complexity around AI and biotech stuff. And that does present a pretty formidable, grim-looking future to me. Not one that I want to rush to embrace. And yet, at the same time, we're also seeing a flourishing of small, local, artisanal, story-based producers and people that are seeking them out in numbers that we've never seen for years or for reasons that we'd never seen until now. And so, again, I think it, it does depend where you look. And I would come back to this. The future, writing this book, I was trying to figure out initially, like, what, what, is fashion what are clothes who what are we really wearing let's be realistic who does this affect all of us and then I was trying to be like okay what 
methods have been used in the past to predict the future? Are any of them valid? How do we, what's trend forecasting? How does it work? How do they do it? Can we be sure that certain things are already emerging and they're going to get more important? So I started from there. And then what I finally figured out by speaking to many more expert thinkers than I am was that actually, and this is kind of logical, but it just takes someone to point it out to you. The future's already here and we're building it as we go. And I think uh, a trend forecaster called Chris Sanderson was talking to me about this in London. But there's no such thing as being sure what's around the corner because we're the architects of what's happening tomorrow and in the near future right now. So we can decide if we want to have these disconnected, ultra-mechanized futures where we don't have autonomy or access to things that we do actually yearn for or we can support things that present a completely different future and I do think we're a bit of a crunch point because it's really up to us isn't it what do we want to support do we want to give give up on the climate crisis do nothing and say it's all too hard forget about social injustice or do we want to do what you and I do and so many hordes of people do which is the opposite, which is like raise awareness on what could be different and then back that. Yeah, that's it. And it's a big job. It's it's a <laughs> big it's job. It's the job. Absolutely. And I, I think I, I kind of want to ask you then, as a creator in this space who tries to drive that awareness and who takes the months to pen the chapters of the eventual book and I know what it feels like to do that um, in a world where everything's so fast and every uh, sort of reel gets shorter and shorter and you can see people starting to edit their reels even more so there's no space between any of the words so that they can shave an extra five seconds just so disheartening in a world where we need more than ever. And God, how many times have we heard more than ever? Um, we need more than ever to pause and think and go deeper and sit with reality. Because for me, that is where you go, whoa, shit, change is required. And what is my role in that? But it's Ooh, almost like profound. we've engineered a world that's moving too fast for any of us to to think. So the reason that we're doing this podcast again, Alex, is because you and I are friends and we've, we've known each other for a long time, but you saw a, a post that I made on Instagram yesterday where I was really feeling like I've got to do some marketing around this book because if I can't sell enough copies before Christmas, then the way the book business works is that we won't be on the shelves anymore and it'll be harder to order it and it'll be deemed a failure. Ah! And then I was like, instead of making a video that is a marketing video, probably quite badly done by myself <laughs> in my room, I'm just going to tell the truth and tell my lovely community of people that already follow my work that actually I feel like this is really difficult and you know, I slog as many of us do to try to make something valuable, but then I don't have money or corporate might behind me to break the algorithm and reach new audiences. This is just a fact of any of our lives if we work in for ourselves or with small teams trying to focus on change making with creativity. And actually, it is an uphill battle because obviously when you're reliant on social media to get your message out, not just that, because you and I both do events and other things, but when you're, you really, the tool in your hand 
the one that is free is actually not that useful unless you chuck money at it, which I don't. It can feel very frustrating. And and I'm I'm glad you raised it because first of all, thank you, because you proved to me, as did many people who commented on this post yesterday, that together we are I don't know if that sounds such a cliche. Together we're stronger. But you know, together we can do things. And people are people do relate to you if you're being honest and you're trying to do something with purpose. And we've got to hold that, hold on to that and keep building these networks. But I'm I'm glad you raised it because I do think it's something so many of us feel when we're involved in projects, whether it's business or community organizations that don't get the clicks and feel unsupported by mm. those who are more powerful. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it also for me, which is why you speaking the truth uh, really resonated and I got kind of like goosebumpy and sad and thought I saw myself in your words and I was like, Farah, it is so <laughs> hard sometimes. I don't think people understand um, that it's not actually about money grabbing. It's actually about paying school fees or boring bills. And you're, you want to say something, so I'm happy oh, to I was just going to say, interject. there's also a perception that if you work in sustainability, you're doing it for the good of the planet, so no one needs to pay you. Which yes. is like, oh, no, because I still have to pay for food. <laughs> I'm well, not privately and, wealthy. Mm-hmm. So, so. And given most of those creators, dare I say, generalising but uh, estimating are women and so then it's women's work to be of service. So it brings back that whole um, patriarchal role of, well, you should just be grateful that anyone's listening. Uh, it's really, it, it is very interesting to me. And then you layer on top of that because, of course, I'm in the health and wellness space and my whole mold saga kind of really threw me into the personal health weighed right up and then the sustainability kind of coming down because I started to realise, shit, everyone's really sick and we can't do anything for our communities if we're all just trying to get through the day. Um, but in that space, there's some real toxicity around um, trophy wellness and, Is you that know, a phrase? Well, I just made it up. It's uh, a good one. <laughs> <laughs> because what I see is you discard anyone who's weak around you. You've got to be around the high performers and you've got to be around the positive minds. And you've got, and it's like, well, humanity is ups and downs. Life is a roller coaster. And what we're going to just let go of those strong friends when they show some weakness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that in the creator space as mm-hmm. well. Someone gets a bit quiet. Oh, okay, you're done. <laughs> so I was going to say two things one is that um the pressure to pretend that everything's brilliant all the time mm. is actually we're the architects of it ourselves we made it actually we should we should not made it up it's because fake. because it you, everyone feels the it, biggest like, fake news of all time yeah. mm. so even though we both work in a space it's all about authenticity I'm sure you're the same that if you feel really bad you're just not going to go online and talk about it I personally am never going to do not if I felt extreme if I felt tearful and like everything was falling apart you would not see me on Instagram sharing that I find it disingenuous I couldn't do it but when I did this little post which is not like that I'm not crying I'm just saying I'm frustrated it was lovely because people spoke a few people commented thank you for your vulnerability and I thought actually that is the thing not to be it's a balance right not to be catastrophizing and attention catastrophizing and attention seeking and dramatic personally I find that off-putting but to dare to be vulnerable to dare to say actually this is difficult and I need some help 
and people really do respond to it when you do that and we know it in ourselves when we see others do it we respond so there's a there's i would like to give people permission to be publicly vulnerable without making a massive song and dance about it all the time because you can go too far because then you yes. become gloomy and nobody wants to come with you and yeah well and that is that just to be honest is okay it's okay 100% and my friend uh, Dr Jade Teeter articulates it so well in that you have these sta- you have these times and you're a victim and that's okay and it's actually healthy part of process to be a victim Um, But what is the moment at which you stop it from becoming an indulgence (laughs) and you turn it into victory to then help others, uh, that is pretty powerful work. And that feel like that's what your post yesterday did. But that's what, thank you for bringing that up because that's what you're doing. That's that's what. um, And that's that's kind of what I'm doing by default by reply, you know, and I think. But also That's with everything you share. Yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting because I'm excited. So mm-hmm. exactly. The, the key to it is, <laughs> can it help others? Mm. That is the key to it. So it is indulgent if I think, I mean, you, you put your barometer where you wish in your own life. But for me, I would feel it would be indulgent if I was just, if I felt like I was just whinging because I needed an audience. But if you believe that by sharing your story, you can actually help others who feel the same and help people feel that, we can all work together to do something about this world that we want to change. That is powerful. That's beautiful. That's much mm. better than saying, look at me, I'm pretty in a restaurant or whatever it is people do. <laughs> look at my avocado toast. <laughs> look at my book, please buy it. Yeah, totally. Oh, gosh. Well, I, I really actually feel like we nutted out a pretty intense uh, thing that a lot of people are thinking about, trying to see where they fit in and... Yeah, we just have to end the shame in not wanting to admit things are hard while simultaneously using hardship to show up in a potentially more powerful and helpful way than you ever have. Women are really good at this, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I just think we are. So thinking about, again, just maybe back to the patriarchy. Yes, all these systems that favour corporate money or patriarchal um power imbalances I do st- I do firmly believe that women and nature have more answers than they have questions we can solve so much of this by just shifting our gaze to things that come more naturally to mother earth or to women's so people sitting I always think about people sitting in a circle rather the circles than like yeah some guy on the top talking down it, those things are there for us actually mm. They're there. they are <laughs> and so when it comes to fashion, I'll bring I'll bring one little fashion question back in at the end. Uh, the future is bright. And I know we've talked about some of the bigger, harder topics. And I kind of wanted to because I see your book as a book of hope and really interesting things to ponder and exciting things to try and become a part of. Uh, no, I really do. Uh, and that's exciting to me. So if you had to say the most hopeful moment you had in writing this book, what would it be? I'm actually going to say that it was afterwards when I had the, was, gave myself the job of going around trying to promote it just on my own, but asking lots of friends to help. And in Melbourne, 
a friend of mine, her name is Courtney. She runs ABCH, which is a circular fashion label. She just sprang into action and was like, I'm going to do it for you in Melbourne, even though I'm really busy. She did all this stuff. She was great. And then we had a lovely Q&A and an amazing upcycling workshop space called Future from Waste Lab. And all these wonderful people came. It was brilliant. And Courtney stood up and she said, this book is for me, the antidote to overwhelm. And I would mm. encourage you to read it if you feel like there's all this stuff crowding in on you in fashion that makes you feel stuck. And I thought, ooh, I did it then. <laughs> you like, did. That's, that's an incredible that's Yeah, an because incredible it's response. so big, right? And people are just searching to find a way to be impactful from our little corner and to just feel like you can be, feel like there's hope in either the purchase or the decline to purchase. And and for me, it's, the book is just full of stories of other people doing interesting things around these themes. And mm. so that's where the hope is, that people are already doing these things differently. And if you looked at the food space or if you looked at the beauty space looking at toxicity or if you looked at, you know, insert space here, you mm. will find these lovely stories of people who are already doing it differently. And I just would encourage everyone to look, look that way yeah. instead of, or force yourself to take time to look that way and to limit the time that you spend looking on what's looking at what's wrong mm. and with fashion I feel like the publicity is really negative all the time negative and your book uh tells a different story so thank you for writing it Alex thank you for having me this has been so nice <laughs> oh so nice indeed and I've put all the details of where you can grab it in the show notes for anyone listening up until this point I'm sure Claire will be very appreciative <laughs> thank you for having me Alex and that is today's show thank you so much for tuning in a reminder we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days if this particular topic was helpful to you head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory which gives you food body home mind and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Low Tox Life.